If you turn with me to Philippians, we're in Philippians chapter 4, uh, doing the second part of a sermon um, through this, and so we'll be in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's go to him in prayer as we need his spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to receive his word today. Father, we do come and we do ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us. I know we've asked that your Spirit would be with us, and we trust you. We trust your steadfast love and your faithful word and your truth and your promises to us. And we ask now that you would work in us by your Spirit, that you empower me to preach your truth, to preach it with clarity, that you would strengthen me in that, and that you would strengthen all of us to hear that our hearts would be soft to receive and to respond to how your word is calling us, and that in all of it we would see the glory of you, our great God, of Christ, our Savior, of the Spirit and his work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Monday night this, uh, this past week, we all experienced uh, seeing a, a good number of objects blowing by our windows. Um, it was pretty significant. Some of them ended up bent and broken and thrown yards away. We, we lost our patio umbrella. It was in our neighbor's yard and completely busted up. In the neighborhood, we actually saw some down limbs when I drove home that day. There was a trampoline not where it was supposed to be. Um, it, was completely, it was wrapped around the neighbor's fence at that point in time. Uh, and, and I'm sure many of you saw a good bit more damage as well. It's very difficult to stand firm against winds like we saw this past Monday. Looking out the windows from where we were, it actually felt like I was watching the Weather Channel um, talk about hurricanes in Florida because the wind was just whipping, the, the rain was horizontal, you could see limbs fly by, ducks, whatever, I, you know, all these kind of things were just flying by, the, the signs were shaken and, and all kinds of things. It, it was a little crazy in that, and it was a powerful storm. And one thing about this storm that was different than what I've typically experienced here is it was long. It was a sustained storm. It kept going and going. It wasn't just this short burst of violent weather, then all of a sudden there's sun and a rainbow and everybody's happy-go-lucky. It was a long storm, and most of us lost power in the process. Now, actually, in, in certain ways, I think that that storm, that sustained nature of that storm is a picture of the experience of the Christian in the world. There are sustained winds that are beating against us constantly. 
that are working to, to get us to turn our eyes away from Christ, that get us to that, that work on us to, to fall, to, to, to knock us off our feet. This is why Paul, I think, uses language like he does in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm against this. And that actually just picks back up from what we read in chapter 1, verse 27, to which we've referred a great deal because it's a controlling motive of this, this whole section that we've been looking at in Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, Paul has been working his way through and and laying out what living a life worthy of the gospel means, what it looks like in some ways, but really so much of what we've looked at from 127 to the beginning of chapter 4 has been some fairly high altitude type things. Count it all as loss. Okay, how, how do I do that? All these, how do I do this in the practical day to day? Well, as he's gotten into chapter four, it moves, I think, more into the nitty gritty of this is life. Hey, you t- learn, you need to agree together in the Lord, he says to the two women. And he starts to move more and more into that here, the, the, the pressures of everyday life, the, our relationships, what we think about, who we emulate, and so much more. And with that, our text for today deals with, as we looked at last week, the support that we have in, in all of life, but also the stipulations that, that God, via Paul, graciously set forth for believers. He set them forth for us so, so that we would actually experience the depth of support and comfort that we have in our God. So we looked last week, we, we spent time looking at support. If you haven't heard that message, it's online. I encourage you to listen to it because it pairs with this. So we looked at support, and this week we're looking at the stipulations. Now, this text is very familiar. Uh, Many people know it, but familiarity does not necessarily mean that we understand it well, and it most certainly doesn't mean that we do it very well all the time. So we're going to look at these stipulations, these, in, in some sense, preconditions for enjoying the promises of God that are given. And, and my desire, my prayer, is that not only w- would we all hear this, but we would take it to heart and make what Paul lays out before us more and more the pattern of our lives in that day-to-day, in the, the nitty-gritty, the, the daily grind. So verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice now, this is definitely part of the support aspect, uh, the, the Lord, it's, it's joy in the Lord, but it's also very much a stipulation. This is a command. We're called, we're commanded to rejoice, and that rejoicing has an object. Rejoice in the Lord. It's something we are to do also at all times and in everything. Rejoice in the Lord at all times and in everything. There's not a time where, you know, you don't have like a, a tax-exempt status from rejoicing as a believer, okay? You, we are not exempt from rejoicing. We are called to rejoice at all times. And that prepositional phrase, I think, is so important because that object, we have to remember what we are rejoicing in is the Lord, not always in our circumstances. Our circumstances are not always joyous. But the Lord is always worthy of our rejoicing. See, there's much in our world that doesn't engender joy. There's dangers, 
disputes and disturbances and death and disease and so much more. And when we, when we see all that and, and we let that flood in, we're, we're in danger of being overcome by those difficulties. They can flood us in many ways, but for believers, it's in the midst of these circumstances and really always that that's when we are called to rejoice in the Lord. That's, that's also one of the reasons for this is rejoicing as the Lord is, is part of the means God uses to refresh His people. When we can take our eyes off the circumstances and, and see the Lord in the midst of it, it is a means of refreshment. He refocuses our hearts on what is of ultimate and utmost importance, on, on what is actually eternal. And that will gladden our hearts when, when so much of what we experience in the day-to-day tempts us to despair leads us down a a darker road sometimes, but as we can rejoice in the Lord, even in the midst of those circumstances, it refocuses where we are. And we see who the Lord is, and we know what Christ has done for His people in giving His life. And and, and we remember words like Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? As we rejoice in Him, it gladdens our hearts. It refocuses us. Well, from there, Paul goes on to another command. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, I might be weird, but anytime I read let your, it doesn't feel like a command to me, but this actually is a command, okay? In some ways, you could translate it as make known your reasonableness to everyone, okay? Make it known. Make it known. Now, what in the world does that mean? What is reasonableness? Like, I can reason through problems, I can figure things out. Is is that what he means by that? Well, it's not easy to encompass the the word behind it into English, into one English word. It means to be gracious and forbearing and not insistent on your own rights, that you're willing to yield, that you're kind. Being reasonable does not mean, though, being weak. Just like meekness is not weakness, being reasonable does not mean you're weak and and just kind of mousy about everything. In fact, it's actually extremely a, a sign of strength in the Lord that you're willing to suffer, that you're willing to suffer for the sake of others and be forbearing and, and not to fly off the handle in the midst of difficulties and distressing situations. There's an endurance of whatever comes your way with a steadiness of both mind and spirit under stress. And this is difficult. And it has to, in so many ways, it has to say, as we hear that, it has to lift our eyes. It has to lift our eyes to Jesus. If you go back in chapter 2 of Philippians, We read, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's a very similar command. And then, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus could have demanded some rights. 
but he, he endured. And it, it points me to 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 19, where Peter writes, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And I love the, the controlling phrase in so many ways is, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly continue to entrust. If, if we want to be reasonable, we are going to need to continue entrusting ourselves to the Lord. And so, as we look at that, if it's, if it's difficult to encompass positively what reasonableness means, and I, and I think we get an idea, we, we know pretty well what it isn't, right? It isn't rude. It's not demanding, it's not self-centered, so self-righteous, self-pitying, self-confident, self-sufficient, self-loving, self-promoting, and on and on. It's not egotistic. It's not arrogant. It doesn't inflict wrong, but it actually suffers wrong. So that's reasonableness, but we need to see what Paul actually commands, right? He commands that everyone would know this, that, that, that when they meet you and when they interact with you, they would know this. Everyone would experience this from the believer. And this is not that every believer, every other believer would experience this, but everyone, without exception, that everyone would experience this. So that's saying that people everywhere, th those people at work that annoy the heck out of you, on social media, where you can sometimes be anonymous. And boy, do I see a lot of people say things on social media that they, I hope, would not say in person, but they shouldn't say it in social media either. In your speech at all times, when you're happy or, or you're stressed, when you're excited or you're just totally bummed out, it's just been a bad day, this is to be what you are known by at all times as a believer. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So here's the question. And don't think about it based on what I just said, but on kind of how you've been living. What do you most want to be known by? In your life right now, what are you most known for? Is it for your ability to make money, manage a team well, lead those kind of things, for your spirituality or your knowledge of doctrine, for your fitness or your athletic ability, for your, your ability to teach or whatever else. But Scripture tells us that what we are to be known by, what we are to most long to be known for is our reasonableness, is our gracious spirit. They'll know you are Christians by your love.
Well, then from there, Paul moves to the next gracious stipulation. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, that first part, the Lord is at hand, uh, of course, that was a support, but that, that phrase uh, affects both what is before, what we just talked about, and what comes after, because this nearness of God will do that. And, and Paul talks about this nearness in, in really two ways. I think we can take it as both temporally, in that he could come back at any time. We do not know the day or the hour. He could come back at any time. But also, personally, he is near to us. He's with us. And both of those aspects of the Lord being at hand support us and support our our conduct with others and our conduct in our inner life, in our thoughts and in our hearts. You know, just think about it. As you think about the at-hand nature of the Lord, what would you want to be doing, saying, or thinking when Jesus returns? What about actively considering this He's right here now. He's here at 3 o'clock this afternoon, or 6 a.m. tomorrow, or 3 p.m. tomorrow, and on and on. Well, that leads us to this command, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I still often say this verse like I learned it, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Now, it is not saying that in our lives nothing will cause anxiety or nothing's even worthy of anxiety, but it's saying don't be anxious about it. There are plenty of things that that are out there. There's an abundance of things in our lives that we could be anxious about. Honestly, I am absolutely persuaded that the 24-7 news cycle of which we've lived under for many, many years is horrific for our anxiety. And I'll say it to you, shut off your TV. And if you can't shut it off, just throw it out. I I don't care. Like, it's not good for us. We're not meant for all of that. We're not meant for that news cycle. It's overwhelming. But our, our worries are not confined to what's going on in the news cycle. The concerns about the economy, those are personal. We've felt that in our pocketbook. Our our gas budget has increased twofold. You know, it's it's doubled easily. You know, how are those things going to affect daily life? What if my car dies and it's not fixable? What if, what if someone gets sick and, and we have a, a pile of hospital bills? What if a kid starts to rebel or a parent's dying? What if my boss goes nuts and fires me? Or if those under me aren't doing what they're supposed to do and I'm getting reamed by my boss because they're not doing anything? There's so many things. And Don Carson wrote this. He said, pressures mount and surround us and bully us until even the Christian who hears the injunction of this passage, do not be anxious about anything, smiles half bitterly and mutters, you don't understand it can't be done. But yet this is the command. And folks, this is not a novel command. Okay, this is not the only time it's been written in Scripture. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, or 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, 
because he cares for you. That casting, casting your burden, casting your anxieties, Paul says that's prayer. Let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is how we cast our anxieties upon the Lord. This text isn't about eliminating those things that incite anxiousness, but it is telling us how to deal with that, how to deal with that anxiety that we so often find. Because so often, folks, I think at least maybe more of the type A personalities will attack their anxieties. You got an anxiety, what am I going to do? I'm going to fix this. I'm gonna, how am I going to deal with it? I'll, I'll, I'll work it up for you, and, I'll, I'll fix. and you just start working overtime. And you think how you're going to fix it. How can you rid yourselves of them or, or just grin and bear it under them? And we make plans and we work so hard not to be anxious about things, but that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture says, pray. Now, I think sometimes we actually do pray well for anxieties. But I think in general, that's for the anxieties of other people. We like, oh, send me your prayer request. I'll pray for you. And, you know, hopefully we do. That's great. Pray for those things. But how often do we really get down on our knees and slow down and pray at length about the things that we are anxious about over the things that trouble and worry us. Now, this, this anecdote may be apocryphal in a sense, but I think I remember uh, saying from Martin Luther that talked about, I have so much to do today that I must spend four hours in prayer. We all go, what? In the, what? You know, there's no way. If I spend four hours in prayer, nothing's going to get done. Isn't that our attitude? The reason we don't pray is because so often we don't actually think it's going to do anything. I mean, how many times, and, and I'm guilty of this just as much as the rest, and I understand the sentiment, but how many times do we say to other people, what can I do for you besides praying? You, you mean like talking to the God of the universe who holds everything by the word of his power is not the most important thing? Now, of course, yes, let's see, you know, he's... You know, it's not a replicator on Star Trek. It's not going to show up food for somebody who needs it all of a sudden. But that's where we step in and do that. But prayer is not the secondary thing. Folks, too often we just start a day and we don't slow down, ever. We say we're too busy and we can't fit in a five-minute quiet time. And then we wonder, where is God in our anxiety? I don't think there's much to wonder about there. We have to learn to spend time with God in prayer and taking our anxieties to Him. And if that means that your, your family gets up at 7 and you have to get up at 6 to pray for 15 or 20 minutes about your anxieties, do it. It's good. Or, you know, was it Susanna Wesley who threw an apron over her head and, she, and her kids knew, don't touch her, she's praying? You don't bother unless you're bleeding or dying kind of thing. Okay? Maybe every mom needs an apron and just throw it over their heads halfway through the day. Like, we have to learn to spend that time with God in prayer. We have to face up to the reality that the Christian life is not one that is going to be anxiety-free. There, there is no get-out-of-anxiety-free card. 
There's no escape from the pressures of life. We do not all become impervious to the circumstances of life. Calvin beautifully wrote, he said, For we're not made of iron, so as not to be shaken by temptations, but this is our consolation, this our solace, to deposit, or to speak with greater propriety, to disburden in the bosom of God everything that harasses us. Confidence, it is true, brings tranquility to our minds, but it is only in the event of our exercising ourselves in prayer. Whenever, therefore, we are assailed by any temptation, let us betake ourselves forthwith to prayer as to a sacred asylum. You know, our comfort, our support is there for us, but it comes from that stipulation, doesn't it, of taking ourselves to God in prayer. That's when we experience it. That's when we, we, we experience the presence of the hand of God in our lives. And that answered prayer might be fellow believers who come around us and support us and help us. It could be so many different things, but that's how we're going to experience it. Folks, this is, this is for everything, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And it's not that God doesn't know them, but us actually disburdening ourselves of them by speaking them to the Lord, by laying them at His feet. His very, very, very capable feet is part of that means by which God will help relieve our anxiety. And what might be shocking or just that we read over too much is He says, do this with thanksgiving. Do this with thanksgiving. Too often in, I think, situations like that, we pray full of complaints and full of murmuring against God, which, which is different than crying out in painful trust, okay? Murmuring is different than, this hurts, God. This is painful. This is difficult. Murmuring is very different. Murmuring accuses God of doing something evil and wrong and demanding that He answers your plea in your time frame right away. That's murmuring. But crying out to God is taking refuge and trusting Him, trusting His, his character and His goodness, turn, turning our hearts to the cross and, and seeing that and, and knowing that, that He'll give us all things. He's, he's given us the greatest thing. Thanking Him for His goodness and His mercy and His grace and His steadfast love in our lives. Calvin again wrote, it is though he had said that those things which are necessary for us ought to be desired by us from the Lord in such a way that we nevertheless subject our, uh, subject our affections to his good pleasure and give thanks while presenting petitions. And unquestionably, gratitude will have this effect upon us, that the will of God will be the grand sum of our desires." So as we give thanks, as we take our prayers to Him, it's, it's changing our heart and it's, it's saying, Lord, we want Your will above anything else. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, You do what You will. You conform my heart and my mind to Your will and to Your ways. Don't let me try and conform Your heart and Your mind to my ways. I mean, think of the scriptures like James 1, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So folks, it's here in giving ourselves in prayer with thanksgiving to the Lord, in pouring out our hearts before Him. Psalm 62, 8, trust in the Lord at all, all times. Pour out your hearts before Him. It's there that we find the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's the peace of God that will protect us. The, that, that guard picture is standing guard, is, is garrisoned around us and will, will keep us and protect us from turning away from God in the midst of the troubles and trials, in the midst of this anxiety-causing circumstance. God's peace will guard your hearts and your minds, will prevent us from speculating and posing those what-ifs and if-onlys, those very faulty and unworthy reasonings that our minds can quickly go to, will keep us from false thoughts and false expectations from believing the lies of the world that are thrown at us day after day after day. You don't need to sacrifice. You can be just as you are. There's no need to change and on and on and so many things that, that point us away from God. As we take, him to, take, take our anxieties to God in prayer and the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. And with that, I think follows perfectly the final stipulation. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Back in 1994, a historian by the name of Mark Knoll wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And the first sentence of that book is this, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Now, back then, he wrote that in the sense of there's an anti-science and an anti-intellectualism stream in evangelicalism. I want to actually hijack his sentence, because I love that first sentence, and put a, just a different twist on it, that, that the scandal of our minds, it's not that we don't think, but that we don't think on the right things. We don't put our minds on the right things. We ponder the trivial and the mundane rather than the majestic and the eternal. Some of us can tell you stats from a baseball game 10 years ago, or 30 or 40. You can recite a play you did in eighth grade, or you can quote almost all of Seinfeld from memory. I don't know who that would be in here, but, uh, you know, and we struggle to memorize Scripture. 
something seems a little off there. Paul here is commanding us to set our attention on the things that are true. That we, that we would not take the time and ponder what is false and, and, and look to that all the time. And that we would focus on the honorable. That we would keep at bay that which is profane. Henry Skugel wrote The Life of God and the Soul of Man, and one line in there says, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loves excellent things, his life will, will move that direction, but he who loves the base and sordid things, their life will move that direction. That's a paraphrase, but the idea is what we love and what we think upon will make a difference in our lives so that we don't, we, we don't look to the profane or the just here, that that's where we set our minds, that which is upright and fair, or the pure. We don't think about those things which are unholy and stained. We don't think pornography is a good substitute for what God has given in marriage. The lovely, those things that are pleasing and good, and delightful. That's where our mind rests, the commendable, things that are worth being made known. Those things which really we should shy away even from speaking of in the dark. <laughs> we, don't, we don't do. We, we, we focus on the commendable. And then if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Paul basically is like, I can't keep listing this, so I'm just going to say if there's anything if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, that's what we're to think about. So what we meditate upon, what we place before our eyes and think about, it has serious influence on us. Paul wrote in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What we meditate upon and, and think upon matter, the reality is, is, remember Jesus said, you know, give them your truth. They're sanctified by your truth. Sanctify them by your truth. We're sanctified by that. We're, we're conformed more to the image of God. I want the sentiment of the psalmist. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want to drill down the seriousness of this even further. Okay, and, and there's many places I could go. Listen to Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, we've all, that we're like, oh yeah, the word of God is useful. It's great. Love it. But then read 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We're naked and laid bare. We have to give an account for every careless word we've spoken. This is, this is something that really matters. Consider 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
we take every thought captive to obey Christ. What do you think upon? What do you ponder? What do you meditate? How, how will you adjust that and change that to ponder on that which is of excellence and praiseworthy? Do you regularly spend time in God's Word? Do you need help with that? I, the elders, the officers, happy to help you figure out how to do that well, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I'm not saying we're, we've got it down pat, but we're on this journey together learning how to do what… I, I want us all to experience the supports that God gives the gracious presence of God to bless His people, to care for us. Because what follows from this, the last line, you know, what you've learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things. He's saying, you know how I thought and where my mind was set by how I lived. Practice what you saw, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. It's not just the peace of God, but it's the God of peace himself. Emmanuel, God with us. It's a blessed promise. Folks, this text is rich, and it's comforting but I also know as I work through it, and it's extremely challenging. It challenges our day-to-day habits of living, our day-to-day habits of thought, our day-to-day habits of how we deal with anxiety and the things that, that attempt to crush us. But the promises are there. The peace of God and the God of peace will be with us. So my prayer and my heart and my my desire is that all of us learn to rest in the moment by moment in the one who gave his only son for us. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, in our Savior, in the one who's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's going to give us all things, the support, the comfort in the midst of this life in a fallen and broken and sinful world. So let us more and more learn to take refuge in Christ, not just for our eternal life, but for our day-to-day living in this world. Let us see these commands, these gracious stipulations as they are, because they truly are gracious from a great God who loves his people dearly and wants to care for us and gather us in his arms and hold us tight. Let's pray. Father, Lord, be at work in our hearts and our minds. Help us to know you, to rest in you, to trust you. Guide and direct us as your children. Teach us how to know your support. 
Teach us how to trust more and more. Grow us in that, that we would grow in knowing you each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.